And welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rocking good time talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. My name is Joseph Wade. I'll be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host Libby Cudmore. Libby, what's shaking? Oh, not much. We are heading into Thanksgiving and there's been uh, some great news that we are getting a History of the World Part 2 finally. It's been a long time coming, but it's almost here. I can't wait. Yes. So in honor of that, tonight we are spending this on the Fives episode, talking about all things Mel Brooks, counting down our 10 favorite Mel Brooks uh, songs from Mel Brooks movies. We, we've debated a lot of them, but I think we, uh, we're covering the full range. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's only one or two Mel Brooks movies we're not going to hit tonight. And, uh, you know, silent movie, I apologize if, for all the silent movie fans out there. We're not going to talk about <laughs> it. Oh, but no, uh, Mel Brooks is a national treasure and will live forever. Yeah. And I mean, at, at the, the sprightly age of you know, 95, he's still out there kicking, you know, doing the damn thing. And, and we salute you, sir, if you're out yes, there listening. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, tonight we'll be talking about our Mel Brooks films and songs. But before we do... We have some old business from our last episode on heavy metal, where we need to uh, address the poll, the the very controversial poll for that episode. Yes, as we've said before, and we'll continue to say, you people are all terrible. Why are you like this? That's the sentiment we want to send to our (laughs) listeners. Sure. (laughs) You know it. Our our listeners hate us, and I know that, but, (laughs) you know. I can't say I hate our listeners because that's how you lose listeners. Anyway. No, we love you. You're just terrible. <laughs> I love you. You're my family, but you're terrible. You're all terrible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for the poll, we asked you what the best song on the heavy metal soundtrack was. Each of our panelists from our last episode chose one of the songs off the soundtrack. And with a commanding 59% of the vote, Don Felder's heavy metal take a ride won that poll. Yeah. What is with that? Come on, really? You're going to look me in the eye and say that was the best song on there? Just because we didn't put Devo's Working in a Coal Mine? Is that that it? Just because we didn't put Sammy Hagar's song, also called Heavy Metal, on this poll, like, that doesn't mean you have to punish us for it. (laughs) I mean, I guess guess they they saw the the title and it's like, Heavy Metal on Heavy Metal? Okay, sure, click. But no. (laughs) (laughs) We're not mad, we're just disappointed. I know. That's the worst thing a parent can say to a child. (laughs) Yeah. With 22.7% of the vote, um, Donald Fagan's True Companion came in second place. Thank you, Dan Pham. Yeah, n- uh, nice showing there. And then finally, with, with 18% of the vote, Cheap Tricks Reach Out. So there's a couple people out there I, I was able to reach out to. It's uh, you, me, Rodney, and Sean Ryan, I assume. <laughs> That's fair. And unf- So, well, no, because I voted for True Companion. But um, that is the one that has been stuck in my head the most. I've thought about that song every day for the last two weeks. It's been the surprise earworm of that album for sure. Yes. That one really, really landed with me. So cheap trick. Congratulations. Congratulations, sirs. Uh, And finally, with a big fat old goose egg, uh, last place with no votes at all, Stevie Nicks' Blue Lamp. You're going to do this to Stevie Nicks? She was trending on Twitter last week. You're going to treat her like this? Apparently so. People are rude. You're all rude. Very disappointed. 
you are all you have all been cursed by a witch, and that witch's name is Stevie Nicks. Yeah. Anyway, so the business of Mel Brooks movies, I feel like everybody loves at least one Mel Brooks movie. If you don't, you're a liar. Yeah, you kind of have to. His humor is so gleefully silly and broad. How can you not get it? Like, how can you not chuckle at Mel Brooks? Yeah, and I mean, he's done just about everything at this point. I mean, he's made fun of westerns. He's made fun of horror movies and science fiction and Alfred Hitchcock. Like, he's done it all. And if there's if there's not one movie out there that makes you laugh of his, I think you might be a robot. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> yeah, and you know we'll we'll probably have to to dip our toe into the conversation about Blazing Saddles later, but you know it is what it is, and it's still a hilarious movie. And the songs in it, and so many of his other films, are just top notch because. Above all else, the man was an entertainer and he knew how to write a good tune. Yes. And I think that's what elevates so much of his work above just kind of your standard comedy mm-hmm. was that there was a musical element. And even in films that weren't necessarily musicals like Spaceballs, he still made sure that there was a song to bolster it. Right. And I respect that. And as someone who has sort of a love-hate relationship with musicals as it is, the art of crafting a a musical in itself and then a comedy musical is really something that is a wonder and a beholden to me. Yeah. And, and so many of these songs have surprisingly, like, I mean, we'll get into them. Some, some of these movies, like High Anxiety, the high point of that movie is the theme song. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he definitely knew what he was doing, and we we got to respect that. Absolutely, this is a man who loves the genre and wanted to share that. And we're gonna count these down in chronological order, from earliest to latest. So do not think that our like number one hit is our favorite. We really are just going chronologically. How do you even rank these? Yeah, exactly. I mean, any other way? There's no way. But also, you know, doing it chronologically, it kind of gives us, you know, some perfect bookends because the Mel Brooks timeline really does begin and end with the producers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a perfect segue to, to dive into the first song on our, on our list here tonight. Libby, take it away. Yes. So from 1967, we have the musical number from the producers, and that is Springtime for Hitler. Let's go to a clip. We looked around and then we found the man for you and me. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. We're marching to a faster pace. talking about neo-nazis what with them being on the rise and all but if anyone is allowed to write a song called springtime for hitler it is mel brooks who literally fought at the battle of the bulge yes absolutely and (laughs) i he very famously said if you can make fun of hitler and if you can laugh at him you win and i think that's important especially as we continue the conversation about how to confront neo-nazis 
in our present day, which is a horrifying sentence to say, but you think about that video of Richard Spencer getting punched in the face. Oh, so good. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. When no, we were... I, I, need, I need to couch that in the, in, the, in the proper reference. Feels good, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminds us that, yeah, if you can make laughingstocks at these people, then you can take away their power. That's not the obviously the only weapon to fight them with. But... Making fun of Hitler was something that Mel Brooks would come back to again and again. This song is so big and bombastic that you kind of can't help but sing along because they play it so straight. And it's the point where they start dancing in the swastika format Yeah, <laughs> that I am in tears by that point. I'm laughing so hard. If there's any problem with the song, and it's honestly part of the movie too, it's that the song is too good. <laughs> and it's too short. Oh, yeah. Obviously, they extended it. And that version, I think, is too long in, in the producers. But it is just so rambunctiously silly. Um, like, I mean, the whole idea of you know, Springtime for Hitler being that, you know, uh, the, the two producers trying to find a musical that would be in such poor taste that it would Im immediately lose the money so that they could make off with the money. And then just turning it into this giant, obnoxious spectacle kind of in spite of itself. It's just, it's beautiful. It's ridiculous it truly and is. I'm the, it's funny because halfway through the number, you know, a couple gets up and they're like, well, I never. And it's sort of like, what did you expect? You were going to a show called Springtime for Hitler. Yeah, exactly. You seem very aghast that this actually is about Hitler. Um, so a couple quick stories from mm -hmm. the Libby Vault. Sure. I, first saw this movie my ex showed me this yeah. it was playing on probably like tmc and we were making hamantashen near purim and my ex was jewish and i think many of you know i was raised jewish mm -hmm. and i had never seen it and they were doing this really neat marathon so they'd show one movie with an actor and then the next movie with him and another actor and then that actor and sort of this chain. And they played the producers with uh, Zero Mostal and Gene Wilder and then went into a funny thing happened on the way to the forum with Zero Mostal. So I got to see that as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was a really, really sort of fascinating night uh, of movie movie watching and the Hamatoshin were delicious. Uh, and that was, I don't carry like a lot of happy memories of my ex, but that one uh, is one that I think of quite fondly because he loved the producers. So, <laughs> and I can see why it's a fucking hysterical movie. Oh, yeah. But the, they did a production of this locally of, of the Broadway musical. And my husband was the set painter. They did it, uh, they performed it at the SUNY Oneonta uh, stage. And he worked day and night on these sets. It was exhausting. It was terrible work. He'd catch like an hour of sleep and then go back to painting sets. Like he was sleeping in the green room. And about 10 in the morning, he's painting the big swastika banners for this number. Oh, God. <laughs> and a tour of potential parents and students come in. Oh, no. And they just see my husband painting these seven foot swastikas. <laughs> And they look at him and he looks at them 
and the tour guide probably just ushers them out. <laughs> That's the point where he should turn around and look at them and say, it's okay, it's going to be a maze. <laughs> <laughs> it's a community reference for all you fans out there. Um, I, so what is our number nine, Joe? Well, if we're going uh, chronologically through this list here, so The Producers was Mel Brooks's first movie, which, again, I feel like is wild. As great as that movie is, like that was his first crack in a movie. And he won an Oscar for he, it. He won an Oscar. He beat... 2001 A Space Odyssey for Best Original Screenplay. That's amazing. <laughs> so his second movie was a movie called The Twelve Chairs, which I feel like I'm pretty confident most people have never heard of, not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Because the only reason I have heard of it at all is because when the Blu-ray set of Mel Brooks movies came out, that was the first disc, was The Twelve Chairs. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So I pop it in, and The Twelve Chairs is based on a a Soviet-Russian novel from the 1920s, and the plot goes like this. On her deathbed, an old lady reveals that during the revolution, she hid the family's fortune in jewels by sewing them into the cushion of one of the family's 12 dining chairs, which have since been repossessed by the state. Now that sends her son-in-law, her priest, and various con artists on a wild goose chase across Russia to track down those chairs. Amazing. That's the plot of the movie. And Mel Brooks wrote the theme song for this movie titled Hope for the Best, Expect the Worst. Let's go to a clip. For the best, expect the worst. The world's a stage, we're This movie is basically like Mel Brooks saying, what if it's a mad, 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 mad world were about how communism is stupid? (laughs) And I feel like this is the perfect theme song for a movie like that. Yeah, and it's a good life motto. In a lot of ways. It's also it, like a very Jewish life motto. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's extremely pragmatic in that that way. It's also proof that he really can write music in any genre. Because this has this sort of, again, Russian Jewish folk sound to it. It's not quite klezmer, mm-hmm. but it's it's on that edge. The lyrics are original, but the, the I guess the music itself is a... Uh... A Brahms piece. It's a Hungarian dance. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I knew it sounded familiar, but I was like, "Is it like a take on that?" But no. Okay, that it is. It is direct. It's specifically Hungarian dance number four. Beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. And also, I feel like it's important to note this song uh, was later remade as "Ironic" by Aladdis Morissette. Ha. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a stupid joke. I'm sorry. But no, the the, the one uh, the one line in here. I knew a man who saved a fortune that was splendid. Then the day he, the day, then he died the day he planned to go and spend it. That's yeah. ironic, don't you think? Yeah, it's like Ray Yane on your wedding day. It's a little too ironic. <laughs> I really do think. But no, I think uh, I think Twelve Chairs is is like a, a highly underrated film, and more people should check it out. Yeah, I should because, like I said, I, this is the first I'm hearing of it, and. I'm enchanted. Also, it has Frank Langella, right? It has it has Frank Langella, a, a very a very young, a very uh, very very good looking Frank Langella in this movie. Hell yeah! So, hope for the best, expect the worst. That's kind of like that's that's the modern era in a nutshell. God, no joke. <laughs> 
But then let's... Probably between between Hitler and just sort of <laughs> listen again depressing stoicism. Like we're really we're nailing twenty twenty and twenty twenty one. Again, if we can't make fun of it, what are we doing here? That's true. <laughs> and speaking of that, let's move on to Mel Brooks's next film, which was the the one and only Blazing Saddles. <laughs> with a theme song sung by Frankie Lane himself. Let's go to a clip. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made the fact that they got Frankie Lane for this is really what makes it just spectacular. Oh, just perfect. Absolutely perfect. You did the you did the homework. You did the assignment. Like apparently Brooks put out a call like for for a Frankie Lane type to do the theme song, and then Frankie Lane himself just answered the call. Fabulous. I guess because Brooks never thought in a million years that he would actually get the guy. And the fact that Frankie Lane was so active in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. really like drives it home sort of even more because he was the first white artist to appear on Nat King Cole's show. Yes. Breaking the color barrier. And he was he gave free concerts to uh the Freedom Marchers. Just really active in civil rights causes. So in a movie that is so mired in the anti-racist fight uh, for the missteps that it makes along the way, the considerable ones. Yes. To have Frankie Lane, who himself was active in that fight, I think is a really nice touch. It it makes all the difference. Yeah. I mean, like so much of Blazing Saddles too, like it's complicated to talk about because like, sure, lots of racist humor but also it's pretty pointed that like every racist joke is is made by a person who is in the wrong in this movie yeah you know exactly like it's it's on purpose and it's Mm -hmm. pointed but a lot of people i guess just they they either don't see that or they look through it trying to find an excuse to be racist Mm -hmm. and that's not what blazing saddles is trying to do absolutely not i'm a quick Line, I have to say it about Frankie Lane. Sure. His music was destroyed in the 2008 Universal Fire. Yeah, and he was he was one of the one of the guys who did a lot of um, a lot of Western theme songs. Like most notably, like he did he did the theme to Rawhide. Like, yes, I, like I know you know Rawhide. That's Frankie Lane. Yes, um, and 310 to Yuma. Yes, and his version of High Noon wasn't used in the film, but um, was the bigger uh, seller. Bigger than it was it Tex Ritter, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, real quick, though, do you know who was originally hired to direct and star in Blazing Saddles? I do not. Before Mel Brooks got involved, it was going to be Alan Arkin directing it, and James Earl Jones was going to play Black Bart. Okay. And the movie was going to be called Tex X as a, a spin on Malcolm X. And that whole thing fell apart, and that's when Mel Brooks like picked it up and said, this is a great idea. I need to use this. Amazing. And he turned it into the Blazing Saddles we know today. He's trying to make a musical out of, which is like, how about we not do that? Uh, Yeah, do we have to? Let's just leave that firmly in the 70s, my dude. Mel Brooks, you already have your EGOT. You don't need to do this. Yeah, you're you're good. You're 95. Enjoy retirement. Yes, please. I understand they are also making a 
a children's version of Blazing Saddles. Yes, they That's are. That's possible? If, if it's possible, they apparently found a way to do it. It's called Blazing Samurai, and it's going to be apparently about a cat that wants to be a samurai, and it's based on Blazing Saddles. Like, Mel Brooks is actually involved in it. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we took the name and, and made Kung Fu Panda out of it. No, they adapted Blazing Saddles into a samurai movie for kids. I don't understand any Good of luck this. with all that. I'm sure it'll be fine. No, it won't. It'll be <laughs> Give it the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. No, I'm not. But hey, I don't have to do that anymore. But hey, we're still not done with Blazing Saddles because this movie has tons of great music in it. Yes. So um, at number seven, we've got I'm Tired as sung by Madeline Kahn. Let's go to a clip. I've been with thousands of men again and again. They promised the moon. They're always coming and going and going and coming. And always too soon. <laughs> I'm tired. Tired of playing the game. This song is a whole mood, as the kids would say. It really is. Lily Von Stubb, what a character. Now, the story goes that when she auditioned, Mel Brooks asked to see her legs. And she's like, oh, it's that kind of audition. He's like, no, 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 no. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, no. So... Uh, you know, of course, they had a very, very fruitful working relationship. She's in many, many of his films and is delightful all the time. She's so sexy. She really is. She's oh, really man. sexy. She was like a singer in her younger years. She was a singing waitress at a barbarian restaurant in the Hudson Valley. Oh, wow. So the Hudson Valley also gave us... Uh, Mel Brooks doing like his, or I guess the Catskills really, doing his sort of borscht belt stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where he got his start. Take that again. Sorry. His borscht belt shtick. That's, yeah, that's a tongue twister. Yes. Wow. But yeah, um, that's, that's where he got his start. And I think mm-hmm. that's a lot of, uh, a lot of people coming up with him, like Sid Caesar and all that, all those people. Yep. The Jewish resorts in the Catskills mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as seen in Dirty Dancing. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those places are gone now, but um, but yeah, that's that you can really see that sort of here and like little bits of it crop up throughout. He definitely pays homage to that. Um, but this song, I just I think about it a lot <laughs> because it's I mean, again, it's it's sexy, but then it goes like off the rails yeah, like when the when the German soldiers come in and and like amp it up, it's it just elevates it to like a place I didn't even want it to go, but I love yeah, it. Yeah, but then it goes back to the sexy, yes. sort of sultry, mm-hmm. uh, May West routine. It just who she's, you know, trying to be. Oh, of course, I, yeah. I love Madeline Kahn. I love her smoky, deep voice, and she's just incredible. It was, we were sorry to lose her as soon as we did. I know it's a shame. And and, sp- and speaking of the great Madeline Kahn, we'll talk about high anxiety later, but she is the perfect, like, Hitchcock blonde bombshell in that movie. Yes, she, she is. is. wonderful. Because one of those women who is as funny as she is sexy. Yes. Which is rare. If I were her, I'd be tired of being admired, too. Yeah. Because it's a 24-7 job for that woman. <laughs> 
so funny story yeah. about Blazing Saddles. Not really funny story, but kind of an interesting tie to it. Uh, Andrew Bergman, who was the screenwriter, is a Binghamton University graduate. Really? Yes, just like yours truly. I founded a creative writing scholarship, and you are talking to the recipient of said scholarship, the 2003 recipient. One of three. So what you're saying is we have Mel Brooks to thank for this entire podcast. Pretty much. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, yep, I was the, the uh, third winner of that. Nice. So the third place, yeah, third place winner. And I just always thought that was very cool. Like, yeah, I've got a, the scholarship from the guy that wrote Blazing Saddles. That's awesome. Yeah, one of the many highlights of my Binghamton University career. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last note on uh, I'm tired is that like I, I I've read that it's like it's it's specifically based on a scene from a Hitchcock movie where Marlena Dietrich sings a Cole Porter song, and Cole Porter is it like crops up a lot in Blazing Saddles. There's that scene early on where the they ask the the black workers the railroad workers to sing a song, and they just launch into a Cole Porter song. <laughs> Which I nearly put on this list, but it's only like 20 seconds long. It's not enough to make a whole bit out of, but yeah. it's just fantastic. Because what he's expecting is Camp Town Ladies, and instead he gets, I get a kick <laughs> out of you, which is fantastic. Beautiful. And we will um, come back to Blazing Saddles a little later as well. Yes. Well, yeah, let's put a pin in Blazing Saddles for now. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But next, can you believe that Mel Brooks produced and directed, like, Two of the best comedies ever made in the exact same year. It's kind of unreal. I think about what I do in any given year, and it's nowhere near that level. If I had made Blazing Saddles in a year, I would be super happy with myself. But then Mel Brooks goes and makes Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, releases them in the same year. It's pronounced Frankenstein. But yeah, we were not going to get out of this podcast without talking about putting on the Ritz. Which, yeah, let's go to a clip of that. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. God, as much as I love Blazing Saddles, like this one bit might be the funniest thing he's ever done. It's really, really funny. And it's been a long time since I've seen Young Frankenstein. Um, but I'm really glad you included this because, of course, it's an Irving Berlin tune. Right. But I think it really shows just how deeply these sort of classical uh, Broadway sort of Tim Pan Alley and these big musical tunes are embedded in him and that he was able to study and replicate so many of them that we'll see throughout his career and really being able to use one in its purest form and still make it ridiculously silly. 
Oh yeah, like just we, is delights me. Like we were just talking about Cole Porter, and now we're moving on to early Irving Berlin. Like that's the the musical pedigree here is is unmatched. But and that he has such love for it. Yeah, yeah. He you can tell he loves it because he produces it and he delivers it with such care and precision. Like this mm-hmm. version of the song, Gene Wilder sings it perfectly straight, and it's awesome. It's great. It's a great tune. And then Peter Boyle has to come in as the monster and just. This high-pitched little voice. Whatever you call that, I don't know, but it's beautiful. I was crying <laughs> listening to this. Oh, it's man. so funny. Young Frankenstein is a great movie. This might be the best, like, two minutes of comedy ever. It's, it's debatable. It, and it's so simple. Yeah. It's so simple. And it's just sublime. And, the- and it, it, I think about... Like, you could see where someone like Andy Kaufman would have, like, cribbed from this with his Mighty Mouse routine. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because once you hear the monster sing, putting on the wrist in his little voice, then you're just waiting for it for the next time and the next. And it just keeps getting funnier with that anticipation. Almost to the point where it kind of ruins any other version of the song. (laughs) Well, it certainly is better than the taco version. That's exactly where I was going with that. Yeah. Like, you just want to hear Peter Boyle screaming bloody murder. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I love about Young Frankenstein, just in general, like, having now gone through, you know, the Halloween season, I watched, like, all the original Frankenstein movies. And Gene Wilder just pitched this to Mel Brooks as, like, what if we just made the next Frankenstein movie? Yeah. Like, it's just, like, it's Frankenstein part six. It's Frankenstein's grandson. He doesn't want anything to do with his family. What if we just made that movie? And I think Mel Brooks just went and took it and made the perfect Mel Brooks movie, but it's also, it also works perfectly well as a Frankenstein movie in its own right. Yeah. Like I said, I need to revisit this one. I I really like your idea of doing that during Halloween, like watching all the Frankensteins, but this one definitely is, is in need of a rewatch. Oh, absolutely. I remember thinking it was hysterical when I first saw it. I hate that there's not more music in young Frankenstein because I feel like it, well, no, they made a whole musical out of this. Yes, they did. I've seen it. I know people don't think of it very fondly, but I remember it being pretty damn good. I have not seen it. I saw it when it was when it toured the country, and yeah, I enjoyed it perfectly fine. I mean, it's no Young Frankenstein the movie. It's no the producers, but I'll take it. Okay, I wonder if that's on uh, Broadway HD. It might be. Well, let's let's (laughs) let's move right along then (laughs) to the next song on our on our uh, journey here. I think this is number. Number five. Okay, number five. Let's do it. Uh, His next film, actually not his next, but uh, after Silent Movie, Mel Brooks made a movie that was 100% like a parody and pastiche and homage of Alfred Hitchcock movies called High Anxiety. And the centerpiece of the film is a musical, it's like a lounge number that Mel Brooks performs to Madeline Kahn and an entire room of lounge goers. It's the title track. It's High Anxiety. Let's go to a clip. It's always the same. Ooh, anxiety. It's you that I blame. It's very clear to me. I've got to give in. I anxiety. You. Would you believe I've never seen high anxiety? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. That's okay. And the reason I haven't is probably because it wasn't at the video store where I grew up. And so it just never like entered in my 
understanding. Mm-hmm. Like I know it's out there, but it doesn't land, I guess, in my head when I think of Mel Brooks. But I did like this tune quite a bit. Again, it's that sort of Cole Porter. Yeah, yeah. I get a kick out of you. Is definitely where he he takes from it. But like with a little touch of like Hal Davis and Burt Bacharach. Like you know how I feel about Chamber Pop. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I thought this would be right up your alley as soon as I oh my God, suggested yeah. it. But I, yes. one reason I wanted to put this on here is because this is one of the f- only, I think, one. This is the way. Well, this is one of two songs I hear that are actually, actually performed by Mel Brooks himself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to at least get the get the man's, you know, talents on the podcast. And, you know, not for nothing. He's he's a pretty good lounge singer himself. He's a good yeah. entertainer. And he gets a little bit of his Borscht Belt routine in there. Oh, yeah, definitely. As he's going around at the, the bridge. Oh, <laughs> newlyweds. Oh, they said it wouldn't last. So, yeah, that's sort of, again, real cheesy, kind of hacky comedy. And the comedy. whole scene is built around, like, him and uh, he and Madeline Connor are in. They're hiding in a lounge from whatever mysterious guys are out to get him. And uh, just to play along, just to kind of distract everybody, he gets up and starts singing this song to everybody. And it's just... God, I just God, I love Mel Brooks. It's so charming. It's, yeah, it's it's for a movie that's it's like specific, like very specific and very granular, like Alfred Hitchcock references, and then to just like stop the movie dead and have Mel Brooks sing this this lovely kind of love song. It's pretty brilliant. The yeah. rest of the movie is I don't disagree. Pretty, it's just okay, but this is wonderful. Yeah, now I really want to go watch it. I wonder where it's streaming. Uh, I. Probably Disney owned it, and there's gonna be 15 sequels. But this is also the like the point in like the Mel Brooks career where I feel like he's starting to kind of take a downward turn, where he starts to make movies because people expect him to make parodies and comedies, and he doesn't really have much of an idea for one anymore. See, I don't think so. I still find him very funny, and again, because there's a very joyous silliness to it, which I appreciate. They're very broad, but I don't mind that. I I like their sort of big hacky look and feel. Oh no, and and I I'm a, I'm a hundred percent there with you. It's just a lot of the jokes later on start to just grate on me, in, in a way that I think the comedy <laughs> has changed, and he didn't really change with it. You know, that's how I feel, uh, and we'll we'll talk about that. You know, okay. once we get to it. But I mean, just to give you an idea, uh, the next song on our list, number four, is from History of the World Part One, the big broad. A musical number titled The Inquisition about the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Let's go to a clip. The Inquisition, what a show. The Inquisition, here we go. We know you're wishing that we go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's him too. Hey, talk about it. What do you say? I just got back from the auto de fe. Auto de fe? What's an auto de fe? It's what you ought to do, but you do anyway. Now, the opening voiceover is uh, rightfully, like, grim. Oh, yeah. So when the musical punchline hits, it's hysterical. (laughs) Like, when Torquemada is revealed to be Mel Brooks and starts singing this song. He, like, slides down this this staircase and, like, boom, it's Mel Brooks. And he's, like, dancing and singing. Yeah. And this big, like, Bubsy Berkeley-style musical number. See, that's great. And... (laughs) Yes. And I almost picked this one, um, but I didn't. But I did want to talk a little bit about 
the art of writing a musical parody. Because for starters, you have to write a musical. You have to write a musical number, which is different than a rock song. Because they have to have a hook, obviously, which I think things like Hamilton don't. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't sing you one song from Hamilton. But I could sing you this. They're also, they're very elaborate, usually with a full orchestra. Uh, so they're, they're big and they're lush. And with a lot of them, they've got to break into different chapters, if you will, to tell a story. While then continuing to have this through line. And we see that in this one. Uh, we have the two uh, Jews who have their little number and their verse. And there's all these different verses, all in these different musical styles, but it comes back to that right, chorus. Yeah. And that means you have to really, really love musical theater. That's not something you could just dissect by listening to one or two, because so much happens here. I would say actually too much happens here. <laughs> it's it's a lot to take in all at once. I mean, it's, it's a... It goes in... Very, it's a seven-minute sequence in a film that is like barely 90 minutes, I think. Yes. And for my money, I think The French Mistake from Blazing Saddles does this better. Let's go to a clip of that. I think for that big uh, sort of mid-century musical number... I think the French mistake is funnier. It's uh, it certainly gets to the point a lot quicker. Yes, and I think stylistically, it works a little bit better. Uh, the content has not aged well, but it's also still like kind of funny. And yeah, it's, like that's yeah. the only thing about Blazing Saddles is like the gay jokes kind of aged like milk. Oh yeah. But having said that, like the French mistake itself is still just this ridiculous little number, and I can't not <laughs> laugh at it. <laughs> Because it's the kind of thing you would have seen in a mid-century exactly. musical. Like, it really nails that. Like, <laughs> you can see Doris Day being, and Rock Hudson being in the French Oh, yeah. Mistake. Like, that's a Fred Astaire song all the way. <laughs> but also, also, the thing I love about that, that number is, like, after that scene, for the rest of the movie, like, the French Mistake, that's, that's like, the, the music for the rest of the film, is the French Mistake uh-huh. tune. <laughs> because, the, because the rest of Blazing Silence is just pure chaos. Yes. And it's perfect. It works but, perfectly. Exactly. But uh, coming back to the Inquisition, um, I think that's that's the one mistake in this is that it does go on too long. And he's trying to do a lot. You know, he has the, like, Esther Williams synchronized swimming routine. Mm-hmm. There's just a ton going on here. There's a little bit where he's, like, hammering the knees of all the, the Jews in the stocks and, like, all, and the, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the swimming nuns and the slot machine with the rabbis on it which is entirely too much, <laughs> but I appreciate yes, the, the, but, the craft of it. Yes, and I will say um, the sheer Jewishness of all yes. of this and the ability of Jews and Jewish humor to find that in just the fucking worst things that have ever exactly. happened across humanity. The Jews have kind of drawn the short straw on that. And I love that he can sort of find the humor in that because that's one way of processing it. Sure. Yeah. And it, again, it takes away that, that power. Right. And like, if you can't laugh at, if you can't laugh at uh. yourselves and you can't laugh at the situation, then we're crying over it. And 
you have, you have to. to like it's a coping yeah. mechanism i mean like how do you even think about the spanish inquisition it's just how horrific it was and being able to process it a little bit through laughter i think makes almost makes it i don't want to say easier to stomach because it's important that we learn the lessons of history so that we don't continue to repeat them as we're doing right, right now but it's a gateway. Yes. Because it at least keeps it open and that you can go and then sort of look in and realize that this was horrific. Yeah. And with, with something like this, you know, people who maybe maybe not, don't know history, don't know the Spanish Inquisition, they can look at this and go, well, what the hell is all this about? And maybe go learn yeah. something, you know, from it. Exactly. So Mel Brooks is doing more to teach us about the Spanish Inquisition than any history class you have oh, in yeah. high school. Or college, and really. There, there's really only two jokes you can make about the Spanish Inquisition. One is this song, and the other is Monty Python's bit. Yes, this, this is, is way funnier. And, because you can't just <laughs> quote it at people <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> the other thing I'll say about History of the World Part One is uh, this is the by far the best part of the movie because I think the rest of the movie is fucking dire. I am not. A, I am not. No, a fan. I love it. I love it. I think it's like, so funny. Also, Hitler on oh, ice. Okay. Come on. I'll, uh, Nick Kroll's going to give us Hitler. Or no, sorry. Yeah. Nick Kroll is going to give us Hitler on ice and Jews in space. You know, I believe that. <laughs> I absolutely believe that. And honestly, if anyone is ready to helm, like take on the mantle of Mel Brooks, it's Nick Kroll. That's fair. I'll give him that. Mm -hmm. But I guess yeah. I'll take back a little bit what I said. What I think is so dire about history of the world, all the little segments like the Inquisition, the Jews in space stuff, all that is hilarious. It's when they spend 40 minutes on the, the French Revolution and ancient Rome where they're just running around and being idiots. I just it doesn't. I'm not a fan of that. They get the ancient Rome bit cracks me up. The French uh revolution not so much i think the ancient rome stuff is really really I mean, just wonderfully I mean, silly to each their own i guess it's, it's my feeling is this should have been more like the inquisition seven minutes and you're out you know <laughs> i'll agree with you on the french revolution but it's good to that's be the true king. that is true <laughs> oh lord we spent too much time talking about history of the world <laughs> so let's move on libby the next section is all you so take it away yes so uh, at number three, we've got the spinners doing the theme from Spaceballs. Let's go to a clip. Now, one of the things I really love about this song is that it's got these really slick 80s production values and those sort of warp speed synths. So it sounds like something that would be playing on the Spaceballs ship. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is this is a great song. <laughs> and then you put the smooth sounds of the spinners on top of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's just perfection. Um. I and that they're just singing again these ridiculously silly lyrics about how they're gonna steal your air and you've just got the spinners for Christ's sake singing about how they're gonna come and steal your air and ruin your life. Yeah, we're the spaceballs. Watch out! <laughs> and I love that this in the movie, like this song plays over the, like the sequence at the end where you know the the giant spaceball ship is is 
counting down to explosion and everybody's freaking out. It's it's mm -hmm. it's such great like mad cat chaos music. Yes. Uh really the late 80s were such a great time for Motown greats to stretch into their comedy chops because again a year later um we would get Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. Yeah. Getting an Oscar nod for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space That's right. in Little Shop of Horrors. So we have this like this sort of obscure Motown revival. Yeah, kind of happening right under our noses. Yes. Um, because unfortunately, Motown Records at this point was signing guys like Bruce Willis. Yeah, that's true. And also, you know, mm -hmm. doing stuff like having the California Raisins sing Temptation songs. Yes. And not hiring the Temptations to do it. Yeah, or letting Dan Hartman sing uh, I Can Dream About it, You. Yeah, exactly. See, it all comes back to Streets of Fire. How did we do that? Yes. <laughs> But now this was during the John Edwards era of the spinners following the 1977 departure of founding member uh, Felipe Wynn. Okay. I so just so we're clear, this is this is John Edwards, not um, Wynn, who sang uh, Rubber Band Man. I got gotcha. you. Which is another one of their, their great songs. So, but I really, I think Spaceballs is very funny. And I think in part because I saw it when I was a kid. And it is very broad, very referential humor, which despite myself i do think is funny and uh my husband and i having always done couples costumes he approached one year he's like well, what do you want to do this year and i was like let's go as lone star and barf that's fantastic <laughs> so i went as barf because <laughs> i got to wear a jumpsuit and i could stay warm and it was a really easy costume to make and he wore the leather jacket he made the schwartz ring which is on display at our house um, and I got a box of dog biscuits that I filled with Twix bars. <laughs> I just like walked around like trying to hand them out to people like, hey, you want one? Oh, my God. I love that. It was really fun. So also Bill Pullman, ridiculously hot. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree. He can get it. And he went to uh, SUNY Oneonta and SUNY Delhi. He in the first apartment Ian and I had, uh, he had previously rented, you know, back in the seventies or whatever, the apartment across from us. So we lived in Bill Pullman's old building. Really? Yep. Wow. And Ian ended up doing theater with the guy who lived in that apartment. What what does that make you and, and Bill Pullman? Absolutely nothing. Stuck the landing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Spaceballs has Rick Moranis, uh, who I love. It's got John Candy, who uh Previously, or we last saw in Heavy Metal. Yep, yep. Big role in Heavy Metal. Yeah, you couldn't stop getting laid. Yeah, for real. Spaceballs for me is complicated because, like, yeah, I loved this one when I was a kid because I was a kid who loved Star Wars and who wouldn't love Spaceballs? I think I actually saw Spaceballs before I saw Star Wars, true story. That's probably fair. You know, that's <laughs> it, it, was, it was on Comedy Central, I'll bet. And mm. yeah, I'm I sure. I think we rented it. I, my first me real memory with Spaceballs was like, I remember I rented it when I was staying over at a friend's house one night because I said, like, hey, this is a movie that makes fun of Star Wars and we both love Star Wars. Let's watch it. <laughs> and his dad made us take it back to the store after like 20 minutes because there was too much swearing. Okay. It was that kind of family. Yikes. And I didn't get to see it again for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I love, like I'm looking at the, the album cover right now. Like they actually, they released a, a soundtrack album years after the movie came out and it's not called Spaceballs the album it's called Spaceballs the 19th anniversary edition because <laughs> why go for the easy joke right 
No, Spaceballs is, it's dumb. It's very dumb. But it's very funny. He captures their stunt doubles. Oh, yeah. That's a good joke. It's very self-aware, and I appreciate that. My dumb child heart. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm the kind of idiot who does put like one, two, three, four, five as as a, a lock combination. You know, that joke was directed at me personally. <laughs> <laughs> now, I did not watch like Spaceballs the cartoon or anything like. Oh that. no, I, and I didn't either. Why would you? No, I was like, I'm just gonna leave this as it is. I did, however, find the 45 of Spaceballs Ooh. at a record shop in Seattle. That's cool. And I was like, no fucking That's way. That's a for sure. And it was. I was so happy. Oh, man. And I also I also have Rubber Band Man. Cool. I'm a big fan of the spinners. If you've never heard Rubber Band Man, it's l- worth listening to. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I know that one. That's a good one. Uh, so should we move on? Yes, I think we have to. Our next song is from Robin Hood Men in Tights. And it was this was a tough pick because you've got the Men in Tights theme song. Mm-hmm. You've got... Uh, the night is young and you're so beautiful, but I decided to go with Marion, which is sung in the film by Debbie Jones, providing the singing voice for Amy Yasmuk. Okay. And there's also a duet version by Kathy Dennis and Lance Ellington that plays over the credits. Where is the man who carries the key? When will he be? I prefer the film version by Debbie James. It's so sweet. It's not a funny song. It's not It's not a comedy. It's just, it's played completely straight. And I kind of love it. Like this could be in any, any Disney movie in a way. Yeah. Like it's, it's a perfect, like kind of like fantasy movie kind of song. It's a love song and there's yeah. no jokes in it. I mean, like you understand like the key is to her chastity belt but you could sing this at a wedding and no one would know. The Mel Brooks fans in the audience would know. Well, they would, but you know what I mean? Like no oh, yeah, one would yeah, be like, yeah. oh yeah, it's not, it's not the French mistake. It's not. <laughs> you Somebody know. out there has had the French mistake played at their wedding. And if, and if you have, I want to hear from you. Yes. Email us at ed. <laughs> so I but, just like, it's such a sweet song. And I remember coming out of the theater and thinking like, that was a really beautiful song. And I, I hummed it for years because I could never find it. They didn't really release much of a soundtrack. Uh, I think until later, or I never saw it if they did. And so I just remembered that that hook. I thought about it for years. I still think about it a lot. However, the version at the end, the duet version, sounds like such a cheap knockoff of Celine Dion and Pavel Bryson's Beauty and the Beast. That was the exact note that I took. I was going to say that, like, it all to me, it's like a perfect parody of like light FM theme songs like that. Oh my God, I hate it so much. Now, I'm. Um, I love it because it's it's so <gasps> clearly modeled after that. Like, they no. did it on purpose. No, because it's so good in the movie. And well, then, yeah. And like, so that when they water it down, I'm like, how would you do this to me? Because that's what that's what these movies do. Like, <laughs> Mel Brooks is still making fun of movies here. I, I feel like that's a joke that he would have made. I feel like he's making a joke directly at me. Um, yes. Now, Kathy Dennis wrote uh, Toxic, 
and I kissed a girl, which makes her my mortal enemy. Oh my god. I don't I don't Like previously Diane Warren had been my mortal enemy, but now it's Kathy Dennis. I don't know how to process this information. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. She also wrote, find the key to your life. She has a big thing for keys, apparently. For Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. I, I, see, I don't even remember that song. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go movie. Nobody remembers anything from that movie. I thought that was from the first one. No. Okay. I've never seen either of them. I was a sensitive child and wasn't allowed to see them. I, I've I've seen them more than any human being should should ever watch any movie. So <laughs> that's adorable. We're at opposite ends of that spectrum. Yeah. Now I remember seeing Men in Tights in the theater, and it was a transformative experience for me. I think my stepdad took me and my sister at the Park Theater, and there's this scene in The Night Is Young and You're So Beautiful. Where he's you know singing this big beautiful song to her, and the way he's standing, his sword comes up, and they can see him yep. through the sheet, and they, it makes it look like he's got an erection. And that was the first time that my young child brain, like, recognized like that's a dirty joke. They think he has a big penis. That's the <laughs> like I, first time I recognize an adult joke. Wow. So I always think of that. That was like a formative traumatizing it, memory for you. It, really more of like a formative comedy memory well for me like yes (laughs) i get that i understand that that is an adult joke (laughs) yeah that's funny and so like that sticks with me so there are there are parts of men in tights that i still think about and laugh there are parts that that i i think are legitimately funny and there's a lot of it that i just kind of groan at (laughs) I I could go a thousand years without seeing the the men in tights rap again. It's not great. I, it's but it's also it's incredibly 1993. Yeah, like, it, it is, and I know that like that's they're kind of doing the like this is the thing that movies do nowadays have a rap right and but it still doesn't make it any better that like it, this is what an old man thinks is funny. Yeah, it's terribly cringe, but like in a t- weird time capsule way, you're like, yeah, I guess. I mean, they were all doing it. They were all doing that. Oh yeah, and it's, I, I get it's it. kind of amazing in that, like in a from a historical perspective. I suppose. <laughs> put it that way. Please, we were doing like, so t- many cringe things in t- in 1993. Oh, we were yeah, a like, year away from the mask, my dude. Oh no, I I know. I mean, no, this was- like the movie itself is like one big parody of of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is absolutely ridiculous and deserve to be parodied okay so i i get i get the impulse thunderdome time <laughs> okay the men in tights rap extended 12 inch remix okay or everything i do i do it for you <sighs> i i would probably just kill myself <laughs> i don't know what i would pick I, I could I could die of embarrassment or die of shame or I could just kill myself. So I'll throw it to you, Libby. Which which would you prefer? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Men in tights rap. Okay. There, you couldn't pay me enough to listen to everything I do. I do it for you. I just feel sorry for everyone whose prom theme that was. Yikes. But w- worse yet, do you think there was a prom that had the theme of Robin Hood Men in tights? Not even everything I do. I do it for you. Just like the movie in general. 
I wish I'd go to that prom. It'd be a pretty cool prom. <laughs> prom in a treehouse. <laughs> see that? See, we accidentally made it too awesome. Yeah. Well, just just pretend it's oodlelot. Yeah. How do you even say that? Whistle stop. Yes. Let me take that okay. again. <laughs> just pretend it's whistle stop. I'm sorry that he's not a fox. He's just a stone cold fox. Wow. Okay. You successfully turned it around on me, and I appreciate that. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Oh, my God. So, Libby, we got one more song tonight. Yes. Bring it on home. We are up to uh, 2001's uh, version of The Producers, which basically won every award ever made. And, again, hard to pick a song because this, str- this was a full musical. So I had to pick just one song, and I picked uh, We Can Do It. Let's go to a clip. We can do it. We can do it. This is not the time to shirk. We can do it. You won't rue it. Say goodbye to Petty Clerk. Hi, producer. Yes, producer. I mean you, sir. Go berserk. We can do it. We can do it. And I know it's gonna work. This and Betrayed are the two real standouts on this soundtrack. And there's a lot going on here. But this one particularly is so rich with everything that makes a musical great. It's got those silvery strings. It builds gorgeously and it swirls and amplifies as Bialystok, played here by the wonderful Nathan Lane, just unveils this truly unhinged plan that he's got and it just sweeps me off my feet now the film version of this is a little bit flat and a lot of reviews kind of said the same thing because it's it's playing to an audience that it doesn't have so Mm -hmm. it, it hasn't quite tweaked how to work as a film um but this version on the the Broadway version, really just top notch. And I also love musical arguments as a style in a musical. I find them delightful. Now, now I've never actually seen the musical version of the producers. I could follow along with it perfectly fine because I've seen the movie. But um, so I guess my question is like, how? What do they do with the musical to make it a musical? I guess. There's just more songs. It's just more songs to it? Okay. Yeah. That's fair. I have never actually seen the musical staged. I've only seen the film, but I knew the soundtrack very well. And I think it was really one of the last musicals that I ever really loved. Okay. Um, So, funny story. Not really funny. Actually, very sad. (laughs) Oh, no. So, uh, my friend Anne and I were big fans of Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. And so in, uh, uh, when we were freshmen in college, we found that they were auctioning uh, dinner and tickets to see the producers, which was then brand new on Broadway. Uh, you'd have dinner with them. You'd go to the show, the, you know, go backstage, meet the cast, all that. And that they were going to be presenting this at Christie's Auction House, along with all sorts of other stuff. One of the whips from Indiana Jones was up for auction. And so Anne got us tickets. We dressed up. We took the train from Albany down to Christie's. And this was uh, September 10th, 2001. 
And we had a gorgeous evening. We ate hors d'oeuvres, we mingled, we chatted with Matthew Broderick, who is really short. I'm 5'3", and he was my height, and I was in heels. Oh, God. It was kind of embarrassing. I've got a picture. Wow. Sarah Jessica Parker is a bitch. She's a bitch. Nathan Lane is very sweet, but he was actually, he was leaving when we were chatting with him, but I did manage to snag a picture. And um, so we we left, and we were going to go to our train. And Anne was like, well, let's explore the city a little more. I was like, Anne, it's late. We've got a train to catch. And um, if we don't catch that train, we're never going to get out of the city. Wow. Yep. I think That's... about that a lot. I'll bet. I was actually, my photo was taken, I believe by Us Weekly was covering the event. And they took my photo. I was wearing this beautiful Chinese dress. And that photo did not appear in Us Weekly the following week. I'm sure, yeah, they had other things on their minds. Yes. So, alas, that's my, that's my 9-11 story, I guess. Wow. Um, yeah. But I think of that a lot because I think of Anne a lot. And Anne was such a beautiful, wonderful person. I hope wherever she is, she's doing great. But, yeah. I still have not seen the producers on Broadway. I also did. I saw the film version with Anne. It opened in, like, two theaters right around Christmas so that it would be eligible for the Oscars. Mm, but okay. it opened in this gorgeous theater. I don't even know where it is. Um, I don't even know if it's still there. It was in New York somewhere. Um, I, I'd have to go find it. I guess w- one of the notes I took for this song, We Can Do It, is, like, I got a real, like, music man quality from yes. the summer. I, f- I feel like the way to do the producers is to just make it like the music man. Yeah, kind of how they did it? I think so. Yeah, it's got like a real Meredith Wilson vibe to it, musically. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know who played uh, Harold Hill in a, I believe, early aughts production? No, who the, who's that? Matthew Broderick. <laughs> oh, that's right. They made for TV that. version. That's right. <laughs> well, see, yeah, it all does come back around to Matthew Broderick. Yes. What the hell is wrong with this crazy, wacky world of ours? Last, well, they could make a Godzilla musical. There's still time. They probably will. Heroes, the Godzilla musical. <laughs> don't don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Sean Combs, give us what we want. Oh man, I mean, you know, if they can make a musical out of Rocky, they can do anything. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's our our selection of Millbrook's tunes for the night. There, there's so many more that we could have chosen that we I mean we could do an entire second episode if we really wanted to. Yes, indeed. But uh we want to hear from you. You know, what are your favorites? Hit us up at the OST party on Twitter. Yeah, your favorite Millbrook's uh songs, your favorite Millbrook scenes from his movies, any anything you want, just shoot it shoot it our way. We'll yeah. uh, retweet it out to the world. Yes, indeed. So what are we doing next time? Yeah, next time on the show, we are discussing the Star Wars Holiday Special. We tried to do that last year, and it crashed and burned pretty spectacularly. So this year, we're going to do things right and have a happy and safe life day for everyone. Don't miss it. So uh, until next time, friends, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore, and you can find me over on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Joe, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cordial Wombat. You can listen to me on the Christmas Creeps podcast where we talk about Christmas movies all year round. We, as of this uh, episode dropping, we just released our, our 
uh, our T. Hanks giving episode where we were talking about the Polar Express. Ooh. I know. Woof. <laughs> See, we could have done that for this show, but I don't want to torture you with that. Not anymore. <laughs> We've already been through one creepy animation. Let's give me some time to heal. Yeah. You, <laughs> nature needs to heal a little bit. <laughs> If there's anything else anybody would like to send our way, you can email us anything at ostpartypod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at ostparty on Twitter. Uh, you know, do what you do with podcasts. Leave a comment. Le- leave a star rating and a review. Let people know that this is a-, a great show that you love and you want to help get the word out for us. That would be fantastic. And I think that's going to do it. So for the OST Party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. Take the ride.